Hello and welcome to the YSPN Kakahashi mini-series part two. I am your host, Sachi Kuida, and I just returned from possibly the coolest, most fun, culturally immersive, delicious, beautiful, healing, and fulfilling week of my life, which was the Kakahashi 2023 trip in which Japanese Americans in their early to mid-20s get to go to Japan, all expenses paid by the Japanese International Exchange Program, to explore the culture, cuisine, and history, and make a whole gaggle of amazing new friends. Last episode, Matt, Michelle, and I talked about what is kakahashi, how do you apply, and what to expect, which I highly recommend listening to first if you have no idea what a kakahashi is or you want to know more about how to get in on this incredible opportunity. Or feel free to stick around and hear all about this year's trip and get excited to go back to part one so you know how to apply for next year. Today, I am so excited to be joined by a few of the friends I made last week, and I can't believe it was only one week ago because it honestly feels like I've known you for so much longer. But first, we're going to go around and give some speedy introductions. So my name is Sachi. I use she, her pronouns. I live in San Diego. I design medical devices, and I'm a Yonsei on my dad's side. I'm Hannah. I use she, they pronouns. I'm currently living in Salt Lake City, and I'm in grad school for education, and I am Yonsei on my mom's side. Hi, I'm Scout. I use she, her pronouns. I live in D.C., and I do biochemical research, and I'm Yonsei on my dad's side. Hi, I'm Kelly. I use she, hers pronouns. I live in New York City. I am currently unemployed, so if you have any job recommendations, please send them my way. I am Yonsei on both my dad and mom's side. Hi, everyone. My name is Christian. Or Chris. My pronouns are he, him, and I'm a special education teacher in San Francisco. I'm Mexican and Japanese American, and I'm Yonsei on my dad's side. To start off our episode, Chris actually found some really interesting information about the Kakahashi program that we didn't know before. So I found this article. It's called Birthright Journeys Connecting Dots from the Diaspora, and it's by Adria Lim, and it's in Descent Magazine. It was published in summer 2012. And it talks about different trips that countries offer for the diaspora to return to their quote-unquote homeland. And according to the article, Japan actually created the first homeland visiting program. And every other country since has followed this model. And the model is essentially that Japanese Americans will visit Japan on an all-expenses-paid trip and get first-class travel and VIP access. To, to different sectors of Japanese society and places normally closed to visitors, and that this would help Japanese Americans reconnect with, with their Japanese side and make them better, better bridges um, for between the Japan or the, the East and the United States or the West. I don't know if you can draw a direct through line from this original iteration to what it is now, because Kakahashi was created after triple disaster in 2011 as a way to express thanks to the diaspora for helping Japan recover. But it certainly is a historical context that shaped the trip. Which is like so cool because I've always heard about the Jewish birthright trip and always kind of assumed like, oh, that was probably the first one or something because it's just a very popular trip. But yeah, the first one that Japan did was in 1925, and that actually was called the Kengakudan. Then since 2011, they've made the Kakahashi trip what it is today. That is very cool. And also just so cool that it's been around for such a long time. 
Now, why don't we talk about a quick trip overview? We're going to do our best to remember everything that happened <laughs> during the week, and then we'll get to talk about more in depth, some of our favorite activities and magical moments. And yeah, so we all flew from separate airports across the country and landed in Tokyo, and then pretty much got a quick dinner at around 6 p.m. when we got in and then had free time. And a couple of us decided to go out and explore the city a little bit. The next day, our wake-up call, I think, was like 6.30 a.m. And it stayed that way the whole week. I love the breakfast. I love mm-hmm. French toast. Oh, my gosh. I'm still dreaming about I'm still dreaming about it all, actually. And the matcha latte, the machine. We drank so much matcha latte that we broke the machine. We did indeed break the machine. It was very tragic. We had to come and refill it. Yeah. Those are a hard few minutes. The four of us would like come into breakfast and flood the place and just everything would be so busy for 20 minutes while we were getting all of our food. Um, So I think the first day was just a bunch of lectures, right? Oh, that's when we met Mr. Fukushima, our boy Glenn. Yeah. How could we forget Glenn? How could we forget Glenn and his warm welcome to Japan? Yeah, Glenn Fukushima was one of the first more official people that we met along the trip. And he gave us a really interesting overview, actually, about the Japan-American and Japanese-American relations. And he raised a lot of concern for the fact that there weren't a lot of Japanese-Americans in politics in America, which was pretty interesting, and highlighted some nuances about how, on our side, we feel like we're pretty disconnected from Japan just by like our ancestry. And then on Japan's side, they really don't pay much attention to Japanese-Americans in general. So this trip is really all about bridging that divide on both ends like it's not just on our end that we need to reach out it really is a two-way thing we need to work on i have spent a lot of my life longing to know more about japan to be more connected to it or uh when i would meet like more nikkei i would kind of like compare like how japanese i was to them but then to go to japan and hear from glenn you know yeah, Japanese people don't really know that much about Japanese America. Like, they're not thinking about you, basically. That was just humbling and made that trip even more special to access those spaces to reconnect with that Japanese ancestry. Yeah, like it kind of gives us permission to create our own space of being Japanese American fully and not like trying to be one and then trying to be the other. Yeah, do you think it was nice to know that there weren't a lot of expectations for me? Because it's it's kind of nice when somebody doesn't know anything about you because you can you have like a blank slate to to explain it instead of trying to navigate. Oh, you're Japanese American. Like, oh, this is what I know about this, and like this is what you should be. I don't think that there was any of that, which was kind of nice, especially when we were talking to the people in Gifu who were like, "Yeah, cool. What's America like?" Because <laughs> they were interested. They just didn't really know what the experience of being Japanese American was. Yeah, I think it's something that Japanese people definitely have an interest in. They just don't even know that it's like a thing. Um, like when I talked to Japanese students during my study abroad, it, they seemed like so interested in seeing the similarities and differences between like how I celebrated New Year's and how Japanese traditions like stayed on, but how many have like died off or that I just don't know about anymore. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that Glenn Fukushima said, you know, there's essentially two responses to Japanese Americans. There's ignorance or disregard. And then there's, I don't want to say exploitation, but like, especially if in power, sometimes you'll be seen as as a bridge or something to be walked on in order to get somewhere else. 
And then once that person used you as connection, then they'll forget about you. He's like, it's time for Japanese Americans to reassert themselves as having agency and power and being people that deserve to be listened to and we have our own opinions and not to be just a through way. Really inspiring some of the things he said. After Glenn Fukushima, uh, we went to the Nissan Gallery and then to the <laughs> Japanese Overseas Migration Museum. So the Nissan yeah. Gallery was kind of funny because it was just like written on our itinerary and we weren't sure what to expect. But it was literally just the car show at the headquarters because we were broken up into two groups for the whole rest of the trip. And in order to go to the Migration Museum, we flip-flopped time spaces there. So they just kind of dropped us off. And then we hung out for a little bit and saw some cars. And then we went to the Migration Museum, which was really interesting and eye-opening, I think. I particularly appreciate the exhibit about Japanese migration to Latin America. That's not something I've really seen talked about um, in history classes here. I feel like there's a whole podcast series we could do just on Japanese migration because it's so interesting. And something that I learned was that, or I guess like maybe it sunk in, was that the very first wave of migration from Japan at all to America happened in the 80s and 90s. And that's when my grandparents came up, or my great-grandparents came over. I was like, oh, my family really was part of this very first migration. And then pretty quickly, once that started happening, the American government really locked down on their migration policies like with the Chinese Exclusion Act and other things to try to prevent Asians from coming over. And that pushed a lot of them to go to places like Brazil and migrate there instead. So now there's a really big Japanese population in Brazil and other parts of Latin America that have their whole own history since then, like in the 150 years since then of the ways that their communities have grown. And I'm really interested to know how that all has played out. And it was cool too to hear some more of the language about what they called the original immigrants, depending on when you were there. Like some were there as scholars, some were there as cannery workers, some were there as farmers. I know my family's stories as my great-grandparents came over to work in a cannery. And also they came over to Honolulu on my grandpa's side and owned a hotel. And it's like kind of cool to be able to directly map that to everything that was going on in Japan that led them to leave the country. Our little guide at the museum, he had a way of connecting the history and making it personal to us. And I, it was like an out-of-body experience when instead of just referencing, you know, Japanese people migrated here, he said, your ancestors. And that was something that really caught me off guard in a good way because I was like, oh yeah, like, these are my ancestors and just making that connection that he's talking about our ancestors and noticing where my family, kind of like you said, Sachi, where my family's root kind of aligned with people that migrated were chosen from like these four cities. It was interesting to see that it, it wasn't just random, right? They didn't just like randomly come, but you know, maybe they had been selected from those areas or had access to it from those areas. And yeah, that museum just really kind of situated my identity as Japanese American amongst the other Japanese diaspora. I think Megumi was Shinikan, so she. It was really interesting to talk to her about her experience being a later immigrant, like her family being like immigrating after the the long like hiatus of migration. I didn't know that much about my family's history until this program because I, I frankly had no reason to ask, and I kind of regret that. I kind of regret not learning about or not actively learning about my family's history before. I like graduated college. I would have taken more 
classes in college if I had known. I saw a lot of these things that I had recently learned about my family. Like they had moved to Hawaii and like been fruit farmers and then they'd moved to California and stayed there for several generations. And I, I did see that reflected in the museum. My family lost a lot of personal artifacts during the war. So we don't really have a lot of that, but it was just nice to see these artifacts being preserved from these families that had moved because it was like, oh, that like, maybe it did belong to somebody that I'm related to. It's it's just nice to like see those things being kept safe in a place because they weren't really able to be safeguarded in America. There was this sewing machine in the museum that crossed the ocean with a family, stayed in America for several generations and like had kind of just been lost and then found its way back to the migration museum. And I think another visitor came to the museum and was like, yo, that's my family sewing machine. I think it's one of those really cool moments where this museum is doing a lot of really important work of preserving a history that is not very well taught in either, I think, Japan or America. And so it, it is kind of nice to know that even as time passes and family members forget to ask about their parents, somebody is rem remembering it. And I'm glad they did it so early on in the trip because over the course of the program, I did get to talk to people and kind of find community in the people that were on the program. But this was like really, really kickstarted the conversation. Um, got everybody on the same page all at once. And so I think it's important that they we went there first. The next day, we took a Shinkansen, the bullet train, to Gifu Prefecture, which is located pretty centrally in Japan and has a really cool history that I've, I had never heard of before. And we got a lecture being welcomed by the international delegation in Gifu. And then we got to visit the Ogaki Castle. The next day, we went to a Japanese sweets shop and learned how to make wagashi. It felt very intimate. I don't know if they usually hold classes on it, but like... I felt special because I was like, maybe they don't do this and they do it just for us. <laughs> um, even though I'm not a very big fan of eating wagashi, I feel like it's a very uniquely Japanese thing to really make something that looks that pretty or put a lot of effort in learning a craft like that. Basically, the wagashi making, it was a bit like playing with Play-Doh. They give you these little balls of uncle or like red bean paste and it literally behaves like Play-Doh and you form it into a cherry blossom we made a little like tricolor package <laughs> i don't know like a teardrop shape and then we made it was supposed to look like a bush with yellow flowers and they like grated the ankodo and you just like pressed it onto a little ball we visited this really beautiful historical village called shirakawago to to go to a world heritage site i you know at least on my first trip to japan was like a dream come true and to see how people manage to build their lives in harmony with nature um, in every way, like the food that they grew, the, the way that they grew it, their architecture, the way the houses were shaped. It inspired me to look at the architecture here and the way we live here in the U.S. And how can we live in a more sustainable manner? It was in addition to the sweets and Shirakawago where there were literally, I don't know if you guys saw this, but like there was literally koi fish swimming in the gutters. And I feel like I said this phrase maybe like 10 million times on the trip, but just America could never. Because my ancestors kind of grew up poor farmers, I think that shaped a lot of my perception of what Japan was. And so to realize like Japan is this incredible, robust, cultural, wealthy nation. I knew that, but I didn't know that. And the next day we went to Nagoya went to the Sekigahara Battlefield Memorial Museum. Talks all about the big battle between the East and the West that unified Japan. Really interesting. 
Then we went and did some presentations for some people from the Japanese exchange program and even got like a martial arts demonstration, which was pretty cool. And then we spent the next two days working on some presentations for the end of our time there, went back to Tokyo, got to spend some more time in the city. The last day we did our presentations and then we had free time Mm. to go shopping. Because we had been wanting to do that like all week. If we're talking about like magical moments, it was honestly having the conversations with other JAs because I don't know about you guys, but this was the most JAs that I had ever been around at one time. (laughs) And it was overwhelming in the best possible way. But just to, you know, be talking with someone and learn, oh, like your mom used this word too, or your parents did this. There was one really specific example, but we had gone somewhere and some, and one of the, I think it was one of the government officials was walking us out and there was four of them and they, we were sitting on the bus and they all four were like waving and doing the Japanese goodbye, which until that point, I didn't know was the Japanese goodbye. I just thought it was something that my family did when I was like, oh my gosh, this came from Japan, just making that connection and everyone else on the bus like, oh, my family does this too. And it was just this really beautiful moment of connecting things that I just thought were my family to see that they actually come from somewhere. And I think somebody in our, when we were doing this, the presentation said, you know, this trip has been so meaningful because a lot of us feel disconnected, like we don't come from anywhere. But this trip has shown us that we come from somewhere. Kelly, when you were talking about your family members that went to the concentration camps, at one point I was talking to one of our Gagashi leaders and I was expressing that sentiment and we were having this conversation and she was like, oh, it's these two words in Japanese that are cultural values. The first one is shikatsuga nai, it cannot be helped. And I remember the sentiment being expressed over and over to me in childhood, just my mom constantly tell us like don't complain people had it worse don't complain and then also come on it's kind of like perseverance enduring the seemingly like unfathomable with patience or, or dignity or a smile on your face and not making a big deal out of it and I remember started learning about you know the incarceration and how unfair that was my mom was like you should focus on how you know the people at Minidoka they didn't complain about it they made they planted flowers they had schools they were able to play baseball like she was just focused on the positive always making that connection to see that it was a you know a Japanese cultural value um and not just something stemming from my mom and and her upbringing like that was just really precious to me in those those conversations with other J's. While you were talking, I just realized that my family does the Japanese goodbye too, and I didn't realize it until now. Oh my gosh! <laughs> like the thing where like your your friends going and they're like driving in the car and you stay at the door like bye. Yes, until you get something. <laughs> like waving at them. None of my friends did it, and I was always like, "Wow, it's so rude of them!" Like I'm leaving, and they're not waving goodbye to me. <laughs> oh, it's really. Funny. I feel like I since I grew up in like kind of a white suburban town, I. Like I was the only one that did it for a while, but then my friends started doing it as well because they're just like, "Oh, Kelly's so nice. She like always waves goodbye <laughs> like, to the very end." And so now they know to like look for me at the door, like waving goodbye to them. Now Aww. they do it as well. Aww. So it's kind of <laughs> keeping alive. <laughs> as like, I was like, we're generations. Like the Japanese goodbye survived. <laughs> yes, that is the power of the Japanese goodbye. <laughs> Yeah, I just thought it was like, I'm the only person in this town with manners. (laughs) Yeah, I also, I like, I also really enjoyed getting to talk to people who are Japanese American. I I grew up in North Carolina, as you can probably imagine, not a huge JA community. And then I, I like went to college in Pennsylvania, and I live in DC, like East Coast all the way. 
and there's not that many Japanese American people there. But like I did grow up with Gambate. Like I used to run cross country and like the whole race, you just think about how much it sucks, right? My mom would be like at every corner and like, Gambate or like, come on. And like it was like the last thing I wanted to hear. So like I don't I wanna try harder. I'm tired. But it was just so nice to like have that kind of encouragement come through my family in Japanese because the the opposition did not know what that meant and it was only for me the most special moment for the trip for me was visiting the meiji shrine so i grew up in a secular household and i think my dad went to church but my family is not religious they are i think however kind of spiritual because my, my both of my parents have talked about like feeling the presence of their parents in certain moments and i'll be honest i kind of thought that that was like fake i was like no, no way our spirit's real. This isn't like Ghostbusters. Like, I don't believe this. I think this was the first time that I visited a shrine where I was like actually allowed to connect with the space because I'd gone before with people who were not really taking it so seriously. And I learned, like I, lo I looked up on Google, like how do you go to a shrine? I learned how to do like the clap, clap. But was it like clap twice, bow twice, clap once again? Um, I learned how to do that. And there was this like moment where I was like, I kind of just like knew that they were there. Like I knew my family was there and I feel like I got that, have that moment. I got to like feel them. I guess I got to like take them home with me because I, I kind of like, I believe in them now. Like I kind of believe that I have that connection with my family that I didn't really have before this program, which I think was really special. And I think it was going to happen regardless of whether I went to the shrine or not, just because of how wonderful the people were. But um, I'm glad that I get to tie it to like a moment that was in such a beautiful place. That's so beautiful, Scout. I really liked the Meiji Shrine. I also grew up not being religious whatsoever. And this was the first place I went to where it makes sense to me. I think absolutely my favorite thing was getting to experience all this with 20 to 40 other people who just understand what the JA experience is like. That's the biggest thing that I've been talking to all my friends about. I was like, I just felt so comfortable with these people. I felt so comfortable in these spaces. There was just so much room to like really bring yourself and to get deeper into conversation because you weren't having to explain everything. Everyone just kind of understood and could talk about it more. For that reason, I loved our bus rides. I loved our train rides. Like I loved all of our downtime just as much as I loved all the really exciting stuff that we got to do. I love that our cat is still active. <laughs> I think it's so fun. I, I also, whenever I people ask me how I travel, I, I just say, oh, I just met the most amazing group of people. I feel like they're so lovely. And of course, my anxiety says, what if they all hate me? But like, <laughs> I know that I, I really like them. So... <laughs> Um, I really am happy that I met all of you and I really hope people get the opportunity to meet amazing people that they can relate to as well. I think the way I was talking to my parents about it was like, I got to feel ordinary for like the first time in my life. And I think like, it, it's something that you can't really describe, but like if I said like Shinkansen, I didn't have to translate it as like, oh, it means bullet train. Or if I like wanted to do rock, paper, scissors, like with Finn on the bus, I was like, John Kempel, John Kempel, let's do it. it. It was just like so nice to feel like I could speak without having to kind of translate parts of my lexicon, which I didn't even realize I was doing. I don't speak Japanese. I know like phrases, but there are times when I want to use those phrases and I can't because no one will understand them. But this was really lovely because people knew the phrases. There was like, we all kind of spoke like Japanglish. <laughs> and so <laughs> I just felt like, oh, like, oh, wow, this is what it, this is kind of what it feels like to belong somewhere. It's like we all live in, in a context that we're not always aware of, but in this group we're like oh we understand each other's context and that just made everything feel so nice yeah it's like so hard to describe just comfortable 
mm-hmm. for like the first like I'm uncomfortable everywhere, but I was comfortable here. Kind of thing. <laughs> Constantly living in a state of discomfort, <laughs> but you guys make it a little less worse. <laughs> like constant identity crisis. Yes. Here I was like, oh, oh, I make sense because these people make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I love everybody having the same specific type of imposter syndrome of like, well, I'm not American enough because I don't look American. And I'm also not Japanese enough because I don't speak Japanese. And I was like, oh my God, I'm alone. This is such a unique experience. And then I get to there's like 40 other people <laughs> that have had the same conversation with themselves for 20 years. But it's so nice to actually like gather these people because I feel like in college, like I had this unique experience now. I was like, there's no one around that understands me. Where are these people that get me? And then here you guys are. We just had to join the program. I think it's it's really motivated me to get more involved in like the JACL programs. Like I've been a member since 2017, but I was really because my parents were like, you should do this. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I want to actually go to events now because I feel like Having had this experience, I know how to navigate JA spaces a little bit more. I feel like I belong in them because I've met a lot of people that are like me that have had my experience. Ayoko was talking about this during the program, but there is this kind of like traditionalist center of gravity in the JA community of like the only valid JA experience is the archetypal one of like the people who came to the camps. And I think it's been really nice to connect with people who have different JA experiences and to see how the space is becoming a lot more inclusive and a lot more willing to hear the voices of people who have maybe they're biracial or multiracial or they immigrated after the war like all these vast diverse experiences of being Japanese American it's really I'm really grateful that I got to hear all about those in this program yeah what I loved as well was we had twins on the program who were ethnically Chinese but adopted into a Japanese American family which was so cool and then we had a girl who was white but was raised by her Japanese stepmom and like fully identifies with being Japanese American and I was like that is so awesome and I'm so glad you got this opportunity too to be a part of this and to really feel your Japanese Americanness. You guys have like actually reinvigorated like my hope for the JA community because as someone who was like very involved for a long time I had kind of lost hope with like the old heads in the community it also just felt like there wasn't a lot of weren't a lot of young people around to like really like start the movement to change and be more accepting of everybody else and keep our community going in a positive direction. But after meeting you guys, I feel like so much more like relieved. I feel much better about rejoining the Japanese American community and getting more involved again. This was just such a unique experience. And I pinch myself every day and I'm like, did that, this actually happen? Like even after it's over and I have these pictures on my phone, was that just a simulation? Like, (laughs) because that's just how impactful it was on my life. Those, the human connections and the sense of community that not a lot of us have had specifically with the JA community uh, before this. And so something that made me want to take action, I guess, within the JA community is we were kind of this younger group, young professional emerging in our professions. And so obviously this is like a very critical point in our lives and kind of a turning point to have such a great experience. It makes me think about the Nisei that are still living and the Sansei, how they deserve these healing experiences too. And they deserve to connect with their ancestry because I think it was Glenn Fukushima who was talking about how 
that was just what the Nisei said. You need to, you need to be American. Like you just need to do it. I think a lot of the Sansei really took that at heart. Feel uh, an immense imposter syndrome that probably a lot of us have also experienced because America is just such a unique place with so many different people who are here for so many different reasons, with so many different stories and lengths of stay, I guess, and, and family history. And so the United States being very white centric as like in leadership and in policies and, and things like that, just how important trips like these are to connect with your heritage culture, heritage language, revitalizing spaces of like community. And personally, I live in Utah where <laughs> this in general, there's not a lot of people of color, let alone like Japanese people. And so, yeah, it's really just kind of, you know, reignited that drive, I guess, to the space doesn't exist, like create it. If it does exist, you know, contribute to it. And just, it helped me see that I have something to contribute with that imposter syndrome and and maybe just my disposition. I'm like, oh, someone else will do it. Or sharing our experiences. I'm like, no, like it, the whole community exists because we share our experiences. It was like meaningful being able to connect with other Japanese Americans on this trip and experience Japan for the first time with, with people like me. And I do feel a profound sense of peace finally going to. I agree with everybody that it was meaningful being able to connect with other Japanese Americans and experience Japan for the first time with, with people like me. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's raised new questions for me. The biggest one being like, what does, what does Nikkei mean? After like seeing the vast array of like identities and experiences of everybody on the trip, I'm like, what does, uh, what does that word mean? What does that label imply? Is that label big enough for all of us? Or do we need to interrogate the word Nikkei or interrogate what does it mean to be Japanese? We were just this beautiful rainbow of, of people. While I feel peace having gone, I also feel unsettled in a good way. I'm curious to learn more. Where do we go from here? What are What does Nikkei look like in the 21st century? That was very beautiful. And I'm also just so inspired to get more involved with my local JACL and local Japanese American community. And I'm just so inspired inspired by you guys. I hope you stay in touch. I'm going to end our session with I asked the group about what were some of their magical moments, so I'm just going to read a couple. Jeff says, lunch with the emperor. <laughs> My favorite part too. Yeah. yeah. yeah we, we had lunch with the emperor. Yeah. He also said it would be visiting Shirakawago and getting to meet and travel with a bunch of awesome JAs. Lauren says the Battle of Sekigahara Museum was phenomenal and seeing how they preserved the history on the battlefield was amazing. Also, I loved the custom anime to introduce the history of it. Jen says exchanging stories with other JAs and learning more about JA and Japanese history was really special, especially as someone who grew up in predominantly white schools and neighborhoods. Also, Japanese strawberries, yes, and desserts were amazing. Katie says our small group discussions during the U.S. and Japan exchange program with the community and learning about each other's JA stories was amazing to share with each other. Also, the beautiful nature and landscape was breathtaking to see in person. Megumi says it was super cool learning more about the JA perspective from you all because growing up, I was only taught and only saw the Japanese and then the American experience history slash history as two separate things. But I was sitting on the bus next to Kristen one day and she started showing me pictures of the documents she found while cleaning up her grandfather's apartment apartment a few years ago. One of the documents was from the U.S. military thanking her grandfather for donating his new truck to help military efforts and sent him a check for $50 to compensate. Another document was the reparations for $20,000 signed by Reagan. 
In that moment, I felt like we were living through history, and that is the exact program that would have been useful to help prevent such division from happening in the first place. She says she also woke up early the day before we left, and while she was running across the bridge, stopped to walk and look at the water. There was a small gust of wind, and the sun was shining, and I felt really at peace, and I started crying. Growing up Japanese American has always given me a sense of guilt because I felt like I could never make my mom truly feel like she belonged and was happy in the U.S. I always felt that life would be easier if my family only had one culture so that my mom would always feel at home. It wasn't until this trip that I finally realized that all those hardships of being multiracial can be used for so much good and that our perspectives can drive change and understanding. In that moment, I felt like the sacrifices were worth it and that is something I am grateful for. Ayako says, One of the most magical moments for me was hearing about your family stories, both during the presentations and over dinners, bus rides, airport gate, etc., whether it was family members that changed names, found jobs far away to escape incarceration, lead in the redress movement, it was during the Gifu presentations that I was thinking about how our ancestors probably could never imagine us flying across the world to talk about them and then returning to the U.S. to continue their legacies in our own respective organizations. Finn says, this is something we joked a lot about, but anytime we'd all make the same sound, <laughs> like in reaction to something, which happened often. <laughs> It legitimately felt so special, like some mysterious subliminal part of all of us was in sync. Or learning that Jen and Kelly's families call the bath a bocha, too. Or hearing Scout call it John Ken Po instead of rock, paper, scissors. Just being able to feel connected to a group of people and not having to explain myself and my family's culture when I feel like my whole life has been a big show and tell. The Meiji Shrine was also very special, and walking around and reading the woodblock prayers together and laughing and crying at them and seeing how similar humans all are and not feeling self-conscious about it being spiritual and special because our group felt like such a comfortable space. Kristen said, two things that stood out to her, seeing nature, history, technology, and culture intersect in Shirakawago. I really loved exploring such a beautiful city and meeting and having so many thoughtful conversations with other JAs to both learn from everyone's unique family history and personal experiences and connect over shared culture and family tradition made bus, train, plane rides all the more memorable. And then the last one is Mary. She says, I absolutely loved getting to see Japan and would highlight many of the same places already mentioned. Meiji shrines, Sekigahara, the Gifu presentations, just looking out the window on the bus. I think the most impactful and magical part of the trip for me, though, was getting to experience it all with you. I don't always feel like I count as JA and worry that if I share how much the culture and community mean to me, I will be thought of as a weave or a Rachel Dolezal type. Seeing how many different ways there are to be JA through the group and how my childhood and family traditions were shared by others and feeling accepted by you all really made me feel better positioned to proudly honor my family's heritage and participate in the JA community. My conversations and experiences on this trip also reminded me what is most energizing and exciting to me and inspired me to start actively applying to jobs in education and international exchange again, which is more in line with what I've always wanted to do and I'm really passionate about. So grateful for this experience and you all. Those are all really sweet. That's really sweet. I share the same sentiments as all these comments. I'm so glad that we got to experience this all together. And I do really hope that getting to hear about our trip helps other JAs learn about what Kakahashi is, get you inspired to apply, and yeah, get involved with your JA community because it's full of really awesome people. Mm. Okay, that's it for the Kakahashi podcast. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you for hosting us. Thank, Thank you, everyone. Can we Japanese get by each other like on the...